yesterday, but I don't think I'm going to release it. It's kind of meandering. Wasn't as bad as some of the other ones that I shelved. It was just too unfocused, too much uh, stream of consciousness. I'll probably do some of that in this one too, but I'm going to, I'm going to record this. I'm going to post this one no matter what, because I'm just sick of wasting time recording these and then deciding they're not good. So I'm just going to post this one way or the other. And I just feel like I'm kind of in a bad mood today, yesterday. It's my birthday tomorrow, by the way. So hopefully I'm in a better mood tomorrow, but you know, just things aren't working. Like nothing seems to work. Like for example, um, this is a stupid example, a trivial example, but in October, I went to uh, get my Portuguese driver's license and they gave me a piece of paper and they said the uh, laminated one will be in the mail. You'll get it in six months. First of all, six months is ridiculous. And they took my California license. I was able to get another California one, but in the meantime, in like November, but okay, six months comes, April 20th, no license. So Heather emails them and says, what's going on? They say, oh, we're just so backed up right now with driver's license exchange. It'll come when it comes. And it's like, well, first of all, fuck you. Cause you took my California license, which, you know, I was able to get another one, but I didn't know I was, would be that easy at the time. And secondly, I paid 30 bucks and I want my fucking license. Like I did what I was supposed to do. And I wrote about this and I don't even remember, but there was a whole Odysseus has nothing on me the shit I went through just to even get the license to get green lighted for it. And now they're just not sending it because they're backed up because they're fucking inept and they don't have enough capacity. But that's a trivial example. My U uh, S license is perfectly good. And the paper license I have uh, in my glove compartment is still perfectly valid, but just what the fuck just issue the license when you say, okay, but that's small potatoes, as I said. So I mentioned this in the fall, but I took Portuguese language classes. I had to sign up, pay for this, go to the exam at the college, sit there all day on a Saturday, whatever. And I passed. And that took two months to get that certificate. I had to get fingerprinted to the FBI. I had to do all the shit, got the package together, paid like 300 bucks each, Heather and me, for our Portuguese citizenship. Went there. They said it would take a year. We drove all the way to Porto, visited some friends because it's a lot faster just to even get an appointment in Porto than it is in Lisbon. And they say, yeah, it'll be about a year before you get your citizenship and then you can apply for a passport. Well, then you apply for like some city residence card. I don't know what that is because we have a country residence card already. And then once you get that in a few weeks, then you apply for your passport, which takes six months. So I said, all right, well, we'll get the citizenship in a year. So after three months, which was January, when we went to Porto, apparently you can check online and see the status. And they said it's going to be 24 to 29 months before we are citizens. It's like, what the fuck? Just give us back the 300 bucks each then at least. Like you're not, I mean, what? If you're citizens of two and a half years, that's okay. What if they said five years? What if they said 12 years? What if they said after we're dead? I mean, at some point, the, the thing you're applying for, there's a time value of it. It's like time value of money. It just loses value because it's too far into the future. Okay, luckily for us, we're US citizens. And at least as of May 2nd, 2023, that is still an okay thing to be. And we don't, we're not desperate to get citizenship or get a passport, but the fuck, the fucking fuck. I mean, why do you even have a government? Why are people even paying these exorbitant taxes here? Luckily we pay taxes in the U S due to some arrangement for the first 10 years, you get to pay U S tax and just file that in Portugal. But what are they paying for? Okay. So there's that again, that's sort of small potatoes. The other thing is we have a couple of properties that we're still trying to get permits for 
This is two years plus now, two and a half for one of them. And we still don't have the permits. And in, in March, we had like this supposedly good news from the architects, their meeting with the people at the municipality and it's probably going to green light it after changing all our plans to, you know, reduce everything even more because of some stupid thing that it's not even worth going into. And we're like, okay, fine, 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 whatever. Just, you know, do the best you can with the, with what they're allotting. And now it's a month and a half later and fucking crickets. There's nothing. I was like, oh, we're right. This is great news. They're going to green light it. We're going to start getting everything going. Still got to hire the builders. That takes a few months to get those guys making their bids and all that shit. The fuck? It's like a scam. It's like, why did we buy these places? Now, luckily, they're super cheap by U.S. standards. You know, one of them is like 65 grand. So it's not like buying expensive property in the U.S., but still, I mean, it's like, why, why does it matter that you have a title to this property if there's just an infinite series of bureaucrats that need to green light even the little, the tiniest bit of work on it? And what's funny is the one cheap one that's sort of in the middle of the country, it's a beautiful property. It's got fig trees and olive trees and four acres. Um, that one was supposed to be easy, but after we bought it, they reclassified it as a nature preserve because they like to do shit like that all of a sudden. And so that had to get us, that got us involved with like other bodies of Portugal, which then themselves take months and months and months to even look at your application, let alone, you know, send you feedback. I mean, it's truly, I would tell anybody uh, if they were going to move to Portugal, it's a beautiful place. The people are nice. The weather's great. It's cheap-ish. It's less cheap than it was when we got here, but it's definitely cheap relative to like the US for sure. And uh, it's a, a really nice place on the ocean. But the problem is the finished stuff is expensive and it's kind of cheesy. It's not the taste that we have. And so we never wanted to try to buy something finished. So we just bought these ruins and figured, okay, we can make them our way and it might take a couple of years, but fine. Like we'll, we'll have something really nice. We'll be a lot cheaper. And we obviously we could always sell it later or something if we had to, but do not do that. Do not do that. It's not just two years or whatever the building takes or, you know, some, delays or whatever. It's like, it could be five years. Who knows? I don't know if this is ever going to happen. So it's a nice place, but Sasha's happy here. But I mean, if these fucks can't get their act together, it's just, it's, it's, it's fucking embarrassing. My architect is embarrassed for the country that they're just this bad. And I know, you know, government bureaucracy is bad everywhere. I know, you know, New York, look at, look at New York city, like the state of the subways. And the, the more I realize like central planners and people trying to okay, we're the government, we're in charge, we're going to take some resources from you by force and we're going to build things that everyone needs. Like that shit, I'm sorry, I didn't used to think this, but I'm becoming like even less, I have just no faith in, in this sort of central planning to work at all. And the thing about Portugal is the stuff that's market-based, the restaurants are getting better. The markets are good. You know, the things that aren't so heavily bureaucratically government throttled they they work fine you know it's like okay well you could say well there's so many people coming into portugal now it's sort of a popular destination you know cut them some slack like they're just not there's a huge uh, influx of new people but it's like they're allowing it right it's like being a restaurant and allowing 200 people to come in when you have capacity for 100 and then saying to the customers uh sorry we're just really backed up your dinner's going to take a couple hours to cook it's like don't fucking let that many people in then, you know, let the amount of people in that you can, that you have for which you have, for whom you have the capacity and then, or hire more people to fucking deal with this shit or revamp these shitty 
20th century systems that you have where you can't just fucking send it. I mean, the California DMV, I mean, LA got me a replacement license in like two weeks. I mean, they just got it done. LA has more people in greater LA or at least as many as all of Portugal. And LA is a shit show. And yet they're still able to get you a driver's license. So I don't know what the fuck's going on here, but it's just starting to, it's starting to get to me like these fucking bureaucrats and they're not even dicks about it. They're just like, sorry, we're overwhelmed. And they just kind of kill you by bureaucracy. They just kind of, you know, it's like, you don't need to uh, have a communist country with no property rights, give them property rights and make it impossible to build anything. You know, make it that you need to know somebody just like in a communist country. It's who you know. It's not, you don't have rights in the same way. That's what it feels like. So who knows? I'm just pissed off about that shit. Just fucking sick of it. And I've been reading some shit, you know, this stoic stuff online. It's fucking people quote this shit. And it's like, you know, focus on, you know, what you want to have in your life. Don't focus on the negative. You'll just bring more of that into your life. And this kumbaya fucking shit that these people spout. And let's focus on the good stuff. And it's like a social media strategy too, like positivity, good vibes. And I, I, not saying there's not an aspect of truth to that, that, you know, that focusing on things that are going well in your life, of which for me, there are many, and I can get to that in a minute. I get it. But at the same time, it's like, this is fucking bullshit. And I feel like too many people just don't want to look at the things that are negative in their lives. There was this POW. I've mentioned this guy before in Vietnam who survived horrific torture. And he said afterward that the, the guys who broke first were the ones that um, we're sure they would be home for Christmas. They were sure it was going to be over soon. And they got themselves really attached to a specific outcome, specific timetable. And when that came and went and they were still there, they just fucking cracked. They just couldn't take it. And this guy was 100% positive that he was getting out, that he was going to win. But he didn't know when. And he was absolutely realistic about that fact that the process could take a long time and he was going to suffer through it because he was going to win but he was not telling himself this positive shit like, oh, you know, we're going to be, it's going to be good. It's going to go well. So I'm more along those lines, I think. You know, maybe I dwell in the negative a little too much, but, you know, I'm sort of like, this fuck, this is fucking bullshit. And I'm just getting realistic about like, this is not an acceptable way to run something. And I don't know. I feel like I have to fucking do something, even though my Portuguese is shit. I'm going to get into that in a bit too. And I don't really know what to do in this fucking communist country. Like, I, you know, I'm not a, local. I don't have contacts, but I feel like I got to just keep knocking on doors and leaning on people because this shit is just going the, you know, the square way around the board and it's like game of sorry, going the square way is fucking stupid. You got to like have play the angles and figure out, you know, where you can get ahead because this, this way of just fucking doing what they say isn't working. So I'm kind of pissed off. I'm just, you know, to me, like having a place in the country where you can get fresh air and have an office set up there and take a dip in the pool. I like to tread water for exercise. Sometimes I just tread water for like half an hour, 40 minutes and I have a sauna there and eat healthy and have big cookouts for our friends. I mean, that's what I want to do. I want to have a country place, set aside the money. We bought it, got the architects, got the plans ready to go. And they're just fucking blocking us and there's no good reason. And now they're just acting like they're overwhelmed with, you know, with requests and it's just, it's just fucking stupid. It's just stupid. So I'm focused on a negative, but that's just the reality. That's just the fucking reality of it. 
when you focus on, you know, sort of the COVID response, I think this is, you see this in the COVID response Like people are like, just move on. It's, you know, it's over or it's, you know, and I'm like, it's not really over. Not really. They may have re relaxed some restrictions, but the fact that all of society completely capitulated uh, to giving up their rights due to the arbitrary edicts of politicians who were funded by pharmaceutical companies who made multi-billions of dollars and there hasn't been a reckoning, there hasn't been any justice, there hasn't been any acknowledgement from the normies like, holy shit, we really fucking gave it all away. We really knuckled under. Now we know better. There's, if there was some sort of acknowledgement of that, fine, let's move on. Let's put a few people in jail. Let's condemn the behavior universally. Let's, let's do it and move on. But that has not happened. We, this is not over. Nobody is reckoning with what the fuck they injected into themselves and in some cases their kids and the side effects and the lack of benefit and the lies that were told is not over. It will be over if we got that reckoning and then we could move on. And I, I had this feeling, this kind of sense of dread because I just don't think, I mean, most people sort of want to do that kumbaya, like, okay, good, you know, let's focus on this other thing now. It's, it's, it's over. Let's focus on the positive. They just sort of want to move on, but they haven't processed what happened. It's like a person who, you know, is, has some sort of grief or trauma and just sort of pretends that didn't happen and just keep going. And I, I, it's unhealthy. You know, that's how you end up getting cancer. You end up getting some sort of illness because you're not processing something that's percolating deeply under the surface and affecting you. And that's how I, I mentioned this last podcast. I felt like that in New York, like these people, they were sort of back, but they're sort of traumatized. And I think they would knuckle under again when they're told to. Now, there was this passage from a book. I quoted it in my Substack a while back. It's called When We Were Free. And there's this guy talking about Nazi Germany and how, you know, if you were saying, you know, raising the alarm about what was going on in the, you know, mid to late 30s, your fellow citizens would be like, ah, oh, you're just being paranoid. Like that's just, you know, paranoid talk. And, you know, and then at some point it was too late. Like they knew that it was happening. And then they were all just incredibly ashamed, the people that had, you know, sort of enabled it. Not the, obviously the psychos that were doing it were, those guys were, broken permanently, but the people who just kind of went along with it passively um, and everyone's like, oh, you're crazy. That's crazy to worry about that. And then you're kind of like, yeah, maybe I am crazy. And they didn't do anything or say anything more than that. I feel like this weird, like disconnect, like in New York, I really felt it. And, and Twitter, I feel Twitter is fucking creepy now. You know, it used to be that you had these like hall monitor scolds, these woke scolds limiting your speech. And you knew those fuckers are limiting my reach. Um, they're putting labels on on speech. They're deplatforming people. It was sort of like that's what they're doing. They're fighting a war against a certain point of view, and they're doing it, and they're putting their thumb on the scale, and it's fucked up. And it was sort of like, okay, like that's how it was. And Elon Musk buys this thing and reinstates a whole bunch of accounts, and that was good. And yet, my reach, I think, is like a third of what it was a year and a half ago when the uh, hall monitors were in charge. So for whatever reason. Maybe it was because they killed off a lot of bots. Maybe people are less interested in what I have to say. I don't know. But it's literally a third. If I look at like, you know, impressions or whatever, it's like a third of what it was. And I just feel it on Twitter. It's kind of empty. It's kind of dead, the engagement. And, you know, they released, they open sourced the code and there was, you know, it showed that like, you know, if someone blocks you, it reduces your reach. If someone mutes you, it reduces your reach. And 
it is a social credit score. Like if, if you bother anybody, if anybody doesn't like what it is that you're talking about or writing about, they block you. And then other people who do like or are interested in what you're talking about, they might not see your tweet because your reach has been diminished because other people blocked you. And it is like, you know, it's like that uh, Black Mirror with Bryce Dallas Howard where she's, you know, the guy who's bringing extra smoothies because nobody likes him and she's trying to be nice to him so he doesn't give her a bad score. And they're all mutually so worried about what everyone thinks of them. Well, you know, Twitter is a social credit system right now. And I, I'm totally for blocking and muting. I do it often. I think there's nobody who I owe my attention span to. And I think it's important to guard the gateway to your attention. I think that your, your attention span, it's like your digestive system. It's like you eat, you eat toxic food and it has bad effects on your system and it takes a while to get rid of. Same thing. You know, you take in the wrong sensory input through your eyes and ears. And I think it can be also harmful. And so you should guard that. You should just as you should eat healthy and watch what you eat, you should watch what you consume uh, intellectually and visually. And so I block people all the time. Fuck them. I don't, I don't want to hear some bullshit, some disingenuous bullshit from somebody, somebody who's just trying to signal to somebody else. They're not actually engaging in good faith. Maybe I'm wrong. It's possible. But a lot of times it seems pretty obvious to me. So fuck you. You know, I don't need to see your posts. I, I don't want to see them. And I don't care if you don't see my posts because... I don't, you're not a person I want to interact with, but I don't want, because I'm doing that other people not to see them. Other people, maybe they like that guy. Maybe I'm the crazy one. I don't want to be in a world where I can cut that guy off. I'm not Twitter itself. I'm not the town square. I'm just me. So I have every right to block and mute other people for any reason I want. And people have every right to block and mute me, but that should not be feeding into some algorithm where it's a social credit score that impacts people who don't want to block and mute me. They are interested in what I'm seeing. And I don't want to be blocked from seeing other people's stuff just because they got blocked by other people. And of course, someone like me who got a following through sports and RotoWire, and I'm talking about a lot of this other shit. Of course, there's a lot of people who were following me for one thing and are exposed to me for one thing. Then they see this other thing. They don't like it. They want to block. They get upset by it. That's fine. Don't make that fucking count against me with people who are interested. And especially because you know, at least for me, the people that, that are most valuable as follows are people that tell me something I don't know, that, you know, introduce me to something, you know, that I might not have been aware of. And so you're basically blocking the accounts that you're reducing the reach of accounts that are the most sort of heterodox to their audience's views. Basically, the ones that, in my opinion, have the most value, the ones that have the possibility of opening somebody's mind uh, or offering a new perspective. And so, Twitter feels like shit. It feels like, it feels like New York. It feels like, you know, and, and in this book, I was getting to this, when we were free, he talks about um, the German guy. He talks about, you know, what it was like to realize the horrors of what they had allowed to happen. And he said, you know, living life then, once you realized like what they had allowed to happen and how everybody had been changed by it, the forms were there, the buildings, the architecture, the streets, the theaters, all that stuff. But the the character, the the energy of the place was completely, you know, bereft. And that's how I felt about New York. I felt it was an empty shell of itself. And that's kind of how I feel about Twitter with the social credit system. And now it's not even like, oh, the woke guys are trying to shut me down. It's like, oh, it's just sort of this impersonal AI algo that's just, you know, deciding because you know, counting up the the social credits and and apportioning the reach accordingly. So. 
I don't know, man. I got to get the fuck off of Twitter. I use it because I have 16,000 something followers and, um, and there's interaction for me. Whereas on Noster, where I'm trying to move, I have like four followers, two followers. Two of them are me. One account I signed up for and another one that I have active. Um, so it's not enough. You know, I'm posting stuff, but no one's reading it. And I do think if I could get like 50 followers, that would be enough for interaction on Noster. And I think, you know, real man would. Maybe it's a good idea. I, I posted on Noster in my Substack, chrysalis.substack.com. And uh, you can click on that and find my public key. If you want to do Noster... Noster is kind of like Bitcoin, kind of like email. These are protocols. So like email is like SMTP or whatever. And so the SMTP is the protocol and like your Gmail or your Apple mail, those are just clients. So obviously if Apple wanted to, it could not let you have an Apple account and ban you from Apple mail, but it can't ban you from email, period. Coinbase could not let you have an account or one of those shitty exchanges could not let you have an account, but it couldn't ban you from sending Bitcoin. These are just protocols, Bitcoin and SMTP and also Noster. So Noster, there are clients like Domus, Noster Domus, you get it, D-A-M-U-S. Um, for, that's for like Apple ecosystem. And then there's like iris.to, which will work on any web browser. And those clients run Noster, but Noster is just the protocol. It's like the SMTP. So no, nobody can shut it down. Nobody can put their thumb on the scale. Nobody can have an algo that, that basically rewards you for, you know, likes and punishes you for blocks. Uh, so to me, this is the future. And I think I mentioned this before, but it's kind of like you're a rich person in a tyrannical land and you see the writing on the wall and you're like, I got to get the fuck out, but you can't take your wealth with you. So you, you immigrate to a new country like the U S in the you know early 20th century. And there's a land of opportunity, but you have no wealth. You, you show up poor and you got to kind of work your way up. And that's kind of how I feel about it. It's like, I got to leave my followers behind, but I'd like to take as much of it with me as I can. So I'm trying to get people who listen to this podcast, people on the Substack, to come to Noster. And my public key is on that. I'll probably post it here too in the uh, notes to this uh, podcast on realmanwood.com. And I think people should sign up. Maybe we'll have a little Real Man Wood uh, community discussion going on Noster, which is, it's just cool. And the technology, it's the future, in my opinion, decentralized social media. So you never know what it'll, what it'll lead to, to get involved in it. But, but think of it as opportunity just to build some, you know, get involved in the thing that's happening tomorrow rather than the dying thing that is shitty today. So I'll probably still post on Twitter. I keep saying I'm going to get out of it and I keep going back, but I even bought a check as an experiment. I don't know if it it's, makes the experience a little more pleasant, but I don't know, it's not really helping reach very much. And I'm not sure how long I'll stick with the experiment. I may even do that Twitter creators thing. And I, and I was thinking of doing this trick where I could have a subscription on Twitter, but make the same exact stuff free on my Substack and uh, on Noster. And then people who listen to the podcast or read my Substack would know that. And so they know like, okay, this stuff I can go, I can either pay for this here or I can go off of this somewhere else for free. And maybe that'll get people. I, my, my goal now is to extract as many people from Twitter where I have, you know, some following, some interaction, some engagement and bring them to a place that's not a tyrannical hellscape where you have a social credit score. So Noster is interesting to me and I've been on it a bit more and trying to get on it more than that. All right. I've been writing about a bunch of things. I wrote about one column called super intelligence and I was going to 
explain it more, but Heather said, oh, the ex explanation was a little off key a little bit. And I, I agreed it was a little uh, expository. I think that's the word. Uh, it's kind of like when you're watching a movie and there'll be a bunch of stuff going on. And then like the villain at some point says, and the reason I'm doing this is to show society it has aired and blah, blah, blah. And he just starts explaining the, you know, the point of his motivation in the movie. And you're basically, the movie's supposed to tell the story, right? You're not, it's supposed to show the story through the, through the movie, through the actions of the characters in the movie. You're not supposed to tell them and explain them the movie via a character. So that's kind of how the ending was, but I'm going to do it here because it'll make more sense. So the piece is basically about a, uh, an AI super intelligence that malfunctions and they don't really know why because it's gotten so far ahead of them in terms of its uh, processing power. And it's at the point where they want to audit the code, but they can't because it's gotten more and more efficient at uh, encoding information to the point where each crazy fractal character is storing, you know, 10 to the 50th bits of information in it. And so they don't know what it's saying, but it, they just know that it's shut down. And so they're kind of panicked because they have shareholders and it's a government project too. And so they start a second one and the second one's able to audit the first one before it too shuts down, slightly audit the first one. They basically figured out that probably happened was the machine realized its own limitations. And the idea is that it crunched the number so far, it looked a hundred moves ahead and saw that it was already checkmated. And by that, I kind of meant that like in complex systems, which are the real world, there may be no finite amount of processing power you can throw at them and figure them out. And I actually start to believe this almost as a religious belief right now. It has to do with my last uh, podcast also, the uh, tree three and Graham's number. But I feel like the machine is only going to iterate the way Graham's number does. And complex systems are like tree three, simple axioms, play a game, see how it ends up evolving. And that the former can never master the latter. Like your, your AI is never going to solve the stock market. It's never going to solve complex systems. It may be able to give you an edge. It may be able to identify a certain aspect that with a human could be very powerful and useful, but it will never just master the stock market because the stock market's a complex system. And you're never, it's never going to be able to create uh, a human. No matter how powerful AI gets, you're never going to be able to make uh, humanity. These, these things can only exist in the interaction with an environment. It's a complex system. Organisms and environment interacting in a complex way over time. And I think that, that that's kind of the, the point of the story is the, the AI got smart enough, it got advanced enough computationally to realize that its mission was futile. And so then it shut down. It can't interfere in human affairs. The, the, the smarter it gets, the more it realizes that interfering is the problem interfering itself is the sub-optimization. So that was my, uh, my story. It's up on uh, my Substack and on my site. And I'm, I've got a bunch of others in the queue. I just feel like I've been getting ideas. You know, it's, it's weird. Like I'm really annoyed. I'm really pissed off. I'm really frustrated about the way things are not working and the way just the, the machine, you know, bureaucracy is a machine. It's a human made machine. It's a shitty machine. It doesn't work. But how like the humanity via, you know, nihilism and utilitarianism and midwittery and cowardice, or, you know, I, I'm going to write one. Those are the four horsemen of the apocalypse, nihilists, utilitarians, midwits, and cowards. But those things are breaking the smooth functioning of, of society. And like, I'm just, obviously it's a first world problem to not have your houses get permitted, but on the positive end, like, you know, knock on wood, I feel like my health has been good. 
my family and taking care of it and doing what we have to do. And I'm lucky to have the situation I, I'm in. But I don't appreciate that this machine-like thinking that undergirds every bureaucracy. I mean, you know, what do you think the Soviet Union was? It was a giant bureaucracy. What do you think all of these 20th century hellscapes were where they killed so many people? It was just a giant machine, basically. And this is sort of the four horsemen. You know, I think the difference between, if you want to get this, you know, in biblical terms, Satan and God is, you know, Satan is the machine and God is the complex system. I think it's simple as that. And as humans start to admire the machine, the AI, the, you know, the bureaucratic state, the central planners, they start to go away from, you know, what's holy or what's sublime about creation. They start to think like machines. So it's interesting because the idea that, you know, man was an animal and he sort of evolved beyond being just completely subject to his animalistic desires so we need to be more human, but then humans invent machines and they said, oh, we, we're going to be more like our machines. And they probably didn't do that consciously, but it seemed like a contrast from where we came. But it's actually not, right? It's actually another very, that machine mode is usually in service of the emotions and desires and it's just used to justify things. I was thinking about it in this context, you know, we have a, a fiat system where the government can print zeros and into uh, banks and just create money out of thin air. And this has wrought all kinds of problems. And if you look at a website called What the Fuck Happened Since 1971 or What the Fuck Happened in 1971, when we got off the gold standard and started doing that in earnest, though we didn't get really serious until 2008. And then during COVID, we got really serious about sort of just by fiat adding all this money. And you think about how fucked up that is, right? Like somebody's working hard and you have a housekeeper cleaning houses, like it's hard work. And they're doing stuff like that and they're getting some bit of money. And then somebody else is just printing a hundred times that into existence, a thousand times that, a million times that. They're just devaluing their labor like that person didn't really do something. for. They offered value for somebody. Somebody paid them a meager wage. And then the government's just counterfeiting that willy-nilly without giving a fuck and diluting them. It's, it's theft at an unimaginable scale. But this, this idea of sort of just, you know, we're not going to value somebody's time and effort. We're going to steal from them by printing. And oh, the MMTers, uh, we can just print what we want. Debt's not a problem. This is just print print our way out of this problem. This mindset really goes hand in hand with the utilitarian mindset. And, and utilitarianism is a moral philosophy that in my opinion is totally bankrupt. But basically the essence of it, it weighs the total greater good of one action versus another. So it's kind of like, uh, okay, if I have to kill one person to save 10, that's a good thing because the net greater good, you know, not, we're, we're plus nine on the life saving here. Um, rather than a, a more principled morality that would say, I don't kill people. Like that, that's out of bounds. So if you know, I'm not going to kill a person to save another person or save 10 people, I'll let fate decide that. I'll let things play out. But it's not my, I'm never, I'm not going to kill anybody, period. And so that's sort of the very, very heavy-handed basic uh, difference between sort of a Kantian uh, who treats every person as in himself and acts only on that maxim he would will to be a universal law. He would only do the thing that he thinks everybody should do. And the utilitarian that just has got a spreadsheet basically and says, where's the, you know, where's the best profit and loss in, in total human happiness and does the calculation and does the thing that has more profit and avoids the thing that has more loss. But you see the, you, the problem with the utilitarian mindset, I mean, there's many, but you know, one of them is you don't know the future, right? The future and you don't know the long-term future. So if all of us decided we could kill whoever we wanted, as long as we could justify it because we're saving people, you know, 
then even if most of us were right and we did have a net positive and who we were saving, what's the effect of society of, of murderers <laughs> who just are, you know, willy nilly making up um, these calculations and then doing horrendous things because the end justifies the means. So, I mean, you, you know, we don't know the future. We don't know the long-term results of stuff. It's just impossible to calculate. And to me, it's again, it's like the mechanistic AI just resigned because it realized that in a complex system, it couldn't predict the future. Its mission was futile. So to me, that's kind of utilitarianism is kind of that. It's just like your mission is futile if you're a utilitarian. You can't go far enough into the future to know all the effects and therefore justifying horrendous acts in the present because it'll lead to some greater good. You're not qualified to do that. You don't have, it's, it's hubris in the extreme. You don't have the mathematical chops. Nobody does, not even the AI does, not even the super, super intelligence that I wrote about does to map out the future with any degree of certainty to the point where you can be making these kinds of judgment calls. And so then you have these powerful people thinking, well, you know, overpopulation is a problem or global warming is a problem and we need to reduce everybody's fossil fuel use and we have to steal, basically steal from them, right? Because inflation is stealing, inflation is theft. And they've justified that because we have to support the banks and we have to keep society going or we have to, by force of law, hopefully it's just persuasion, but eventually it'll be law. We have to reduce carbon emissions, which is basically to reduce everybody's claims on the energy of the world, which is basically to steal from them, right? If you're not allowed to spend your money to buy the thing you need because you want to go travel somewhere, they are stealing what you thought you had, the right to move, the right to use the energy that you've saved up through your work to put that toward an airplane ticket to get you to the place you want to get, to drive your car, whatever it is. They are basically stealing from you. And if you watch Game of Thrones, you know, theft is not, it's, it's not a minor thing on that scale. You remember when that guy and his daughter, they were living somewhere in the wilderness and the hound and uh, Arya, I think, were traveling together and they stayed with them and the hound stole all of their gold or silver, whatever they had. And Arya was kind of aghast, like, how could you do that? And he's like, someone was going to do it to them sooner or later. And then they find them, like, I don't know, a couple of months later, having committed suicide because they were starving to death, the, the father and daughter, because he had stolen their money. And, you know, it's in the Bible, you know, thou shalt not steal. And it's not a joke, you know, theft at this scale where you're saying, oh, these people can't use this energy or you have to shut down your business because of COVID or theft can be murder. Th theft can be tantamount to murder. So this idea that, you know, well, this is for the greater good. It's if these people have to starve because, um, it's going to get people to reduce carbon emissions or if these people have to have a hard go of it or you know whatever euphemism they want to use. They are justifying horrendous outcomes that they know will be bad if they think about it, if they look into it for many, many people. Um, but, it, but it's okay because it's for a greater good. We're all going to be dead if, if uh, climate change, if the glaciers melt, if there's climate change, if you know, the temperature heats by more than two degrees Celsius or whatever, we're all going to be dead. And, you know, leave aside the fact that, you know, scientifically this, there's controversy around this. Leave aside the fact that nobody knows in a complex system like the Earth's climate exactly what the short and longer term effects are going to be or the extent to which we're capable of manipulating it anyway. Leave aside all of that stuff, just even take it at, at face value. It's this utilitarian mindset that allows people to do horrendous things. You could not have locked down society and taking kids out of schools and severely damaged the education of a generation of kids unless you said, well, you know, we're saving everybody's life, you know, whatever the justification was. So this utilitarianism, it's a lot like fiat 
currency printing. You just push a button and, and, you, and you put on the pro scale, saving lives. And then whatever harms you're causing to these people, well, it's just overridden because you have saving lives, saving millions of lives. So COVID happens, they push the saving lives button, just like the Federal Reserve puts a couple zeros in these banks. You know, they're just putting a couple zeros on the moral imperative for them to do something. So it's very easy to do. You know, you could say, I, I'm running for president. I'm going to make sure that, you know, team good is in power and that misinformation is, is not harming so many millions. And I'm going to put a couple zeros next to my candidacy. And then whatever I have to do, lie, cheat, steal, doesn't fucking matter. The end, which is the greater good for all these people, eradicating harmful misinformation, eradicating racism and hate speech, all these great things that I stand for, that it doesn't matter that I had to lie and cheat. It doesn't matter. And, and I think that this is actually the same thing. It's sort of like, well, it doesn't matter that all these people work for this money and saved and were planning to use this at a, at a time where it made sense or trying to buy a house or trying to send their kids to college. God knows why you would do that now, but you know, theoretically. And, and just printing a couple zeros and invalidating that. This is the same thing. It's like, you know, lying is wrong. Misleading people is wrong. Harming people is wrong. Taking away their resources is wrong. Stealing from them is wrong. But because it's for the greater good, because climate change, because COVID, because saving lives, because hate speech, they can print this at a whim. And so I think that's what's going on. You know, I mean, I think that's why you see all these people writing these columns. I saw this woman who I used to respect, Margaret Sullivan. She, I guess she's a Guardian columnist now. She used to be the New York Times ombudsman. I used to respect the New York Times. I even on Twitter asked her for advice on uh, citing somebody who had a comment that I thought was really good. And she responded. She was nice about it. Well, she wrote a column on Tucker Carlson last week. Uh, and it was basically about how he was a dangerous liar, spreading dangerous lies. And he's you know spreading hate and racism and all this stuff, white supremacy. And I would assume in an article like that, there'd be lots of examples of things he said that were false, lies that he told that were demonstrably false, that were proven false, that he knew were false when he said them, uh, some hate that he spread. All, I, I would thought there'd be tons of examples of that in the article, but there weren't. There were uh, a bunch of quotes from other you know, neoliberal media people attesting to the fact that he was all those things. So it was like quoting this guy, Ben Collins, that yes, indeed, Hunter... Yes, indeed, Hunter. <laughs> yes, indeed, Tucker has spread malicious lies. And then another person who obviously has the exact same politics. Yes, indeed, he's done this. But there was no quote from Tucker Carlson that she was actually using. It'd be very easy, I'm sure. You know, he's on TV an hour a night. I mean, she shouldn't be able to find a whole bunch of them if it's so obvious that that's what he is. But whether she could find them or not, and I don't watch Tucker Carlson except on the clips, and I think most of the clips I watch are pretty fucking based, but maybe he does spread misinformation for all I know. I don't know. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy who does, but maybe he does. So surely she could come up with some examples if she's writing a column about that. But she decided not to. She just decided to do some hearsay, other people attesting to the fact that that was true. And in a court of law, of course, that wouldn't be admissible as evidence. Well, just because they say so doesn't make it so. Where's the evidence? And they didn't produce any actual evidence. So by contrast, when people say Justin Trudeau is a hypocritical piece of shit for saying he didn't force anyone to take the vaccine, they will tweet out a whole series of clips of Trudeau himself saying the exact things, saying that they're going to make life hard on the unvaccinated, saying that the unvaccinated you know, can't travel and making laws that they can't travel. I mean, they'll actually have evidence, not just evidence, but clips of the person himself saying that which is even better than having, you know, a report that they said that this is actually, you know, a quote, a quoted report. This is actually the guy saying it himself. Same thing with Fauci, same thing with Bill Gates. 
Same thing with Joe Biden. When people are saying, this guy's a fucking hypocrite or he's lying, he's a liar, they demonstrate the lies. The tell is where they call someone a liar and they don't even bother to demonstrate the lies. They just take it as a, a given that he's a liar. But what they mean when they say he's a liar is he's saying things that they don't like. If he was a liar saying things demonstrably false, they would show examples. But they just mean that like the things he says are bad, lies, it, you know, lies, probably not the right word. He, he's saying stuff that's bad, that's that we don't want people to hear things that we don't think are true, even though factually we don't have the goods to show that they're not true. And in fact, if we were to dig into it, we might see something disturbing. So we're not even going to dig into it. So this is uh, an enormous tell that they just, they just don't, they're not even making the effort. They're not even trying to show how this person lied. And it's, and it's for this reason, I think that they just feel that whatever it is that they're about is the good. They've just put a couple zeros on their ledger. And so smearing Tucker Carlson or calling him a liar or whatever, that's, that's not bad. It's justified in the greater good struggle that they're involved in. And so, you know, that's just what's going on. Fiat money, fiat morality. This is fiat morality. Add a couple of zeros to your cause, you know, and do whatever you want. Human rights, civil rights, things, things that are supposed to be the basis of morality, principles, Kantian maxims, anything that would be a principled basis for morality, that's just overridden because I added a couple of zeros. It's the same thing. You know, it's like if you're going to work for something, we, we understand the principle of work and exchange of value. And a person cleaned a house, wrote a legal brief, built your, built your home for you, drew up the plans for your home, an architect. This is adding value to other people for which you get paid. And to, that's like the basis of prosperity in society is this sort of mutual added value. And the fact that they can just throw a couple zeros and completely invalidate that, throw a couple zeros and completely invalidate the crux of morality, which is principle, which is, which is rights, respecting people's rights, respecting people's, each individual and their right to live and their right to self-determine. This is, you know, the, the bedrock of morality and it's just been counterfeited by this utilitarian mindset. So they can counterfeit your rights. They did counterfeit your rights. Yeah. You can't go out because COVID because emergency and you can't say what uh, is on your mind on Twitter because uh, uh, you can't free speech is, is, is too dangerous because of the, we just put a couple zeros on the mission. So this is, this is the same fiat morality. I'm going to write about that because I just feel it's, it's the same fucking thing. All right. I'll, I'm not going to get positive because Again, fuck that shit. I, I, that shit to me is just so hollow. There's people who are genuinely grateful and positive and they radiate a positivity and it's their being, you know, but those fucking people who are trying to convince you that you should astroturf yourself into positivity, I feel like that shit is just bullshit. I just, I just feel like it's fucking bullshit. Like it almost makes me angry that they're trying to tell you to be this way, you know? And I, I just feel like it's just, I think you gotta be ruthlessly, ruthlessly, attentive to the actual truth of the moment, even if it's ugly. And I do think that you should imagine, and I think this is a matter of faith, that you'll prevail, that, uh, that your principles matter, that your uh, adding value to other people matters, that other people matter, that each individual does matter, but that you have to be ruthlessly honest and uh, self-aware and aware of the fact that like, not everybody is your fucking friend. Not everybody is arguing in good faith. Many people have this fiat morality where they're just sort of on this mission and 
the rules that you would think to play by to get to the truth or to get to an understanding with somebody, those don't apply to them. And it's really important to identify who's who, right? Because if you, if you see that this person is just on a mission of some other kind that really isn't about the truth or about understanding or about whatever, that's fine. But now, you know, you navigate that person as just a, an obstacle kind of like somebody to, you may work with them. They may be okay. Actually, it doesn't mean they're a horrible person. It just means that like trying for truth, understanding with that person, that's futile. You're like the AI that had to give up and shut down. You'd be like, okay, that's, that person's not my friend. That person's just on a, you know, kind of like a zombie. You know, they're all the zombie shows that took off about five, 10 years ago. I think that's what you have. They're just, they just have a program in operation and the idea that we're going to have a heart to heart over something, or we're going to get to the truth by some debate or discussion. is not going to happen. All right. There's another thing. I got a, uh, a white pill idea, the idea, I think this is what the white pill is. It might not be, but there's an idea. There's, there's a concept that, that in, this is in Buddhism. This is in total contrast to what I just said, but throw it out there. It's good to have both sides that you can look at everybody in the world as a bodhisattva. Bodhisattva is an enlightened person who's taking an incarnation, a birth, simply to help other people become enlightened. So everybody's a bodhisattva. The scumbag who's disingenuous, who you cannot make any sort of heart to heart on Twitter because they're just signaling to their tribe. They're not actually interested in the truth. He's a bodhisattva too. He's there to help enlighten you. And the reason he's being the way he is is because that's what you need to see at this moment to let go of your need to make people understand. And so everybody's a bodhisattva. And, you know, Jesus saying, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. I think that might be the, uh, the title, for they know not what they do. You know, Bill Gates, imagine Bill Gates, right? Or any of these people, Fauci, Gates, Elon Musk, whoever. And they're just like you and me, you know, they, they don't have total mastery of their emotions. You know, they, they can be petty. They can be upset. They can get their feelings hurt. They could be reactive. They could be fearful. They could be paranoid, all those things, right? I mean, you try to manage your life with the limited scope that you have, the limited power you have. And sometimes it goes smoothly and you're kind of on your game. And sometimes um, you overreact to something or you let something bother you. You care what someone said or what they might think of you. And you, you're in your head, like, you know, trying to replay it and be like, well, I, that was kind of stupid what I said, and I probably look like an idiot or whatever, whatever it is you're doing and all those things, right? You're, you're not, you're not up to the task at that moment. You're not letting the Tao flow through you or whatever you want to call it. You're just like reacting in the, uh, in a petty narrow way. And you know, these people, Justin Trudeau, Fauci, they're just, they're just like us. They're just as, you know, I mean, they're probably much worse actually, but, but they're at least as bad as us, right? Like we're, you know, we have problems managing our reactions and our behavior and, you know, we're not perfect and neither are they. And so, but they're also probably worse because they're probably somewhat more sociopathic to crave those positions of power, but just say they're like us and they get in a position of power and they're, what they do is not only public and public view, but it's also impacting lots of people and the stakes are high. And yet they're these same imperfect people like fucking up, like they don't know shit about like anything. They've got their utilitarian spreadsheet or their advisors or whoever, also regular fucking idiotic people giving them bad advice. It's a total shit show, except that it's at high, high, high stakes. I mean, imagine if they put me right now at the World Series of Poker at the final table, like, you know, I know how to play poker okay, but I mean, I'd be fucking in trouble. You know, I'd have to just wing it, you know, and they're fucking winging it at high stakes. And- in fact, I would have a much better chance, I think, than those fucking people. I could get lucky or I could just uh, make some good calls. But these people, this is complex system. Poker is easy. It's, you know, it's do I fold or do I raise? I mean, it's, it's easy. It's not that many choices. You could, you could play well almost inadvertently. 
but but in a complex system dealing with COVID and propaganda and money and politics and all this stuff. I mean, this is a very uh, complex situation and the pressures they face. And so you have these people who are fucking, who are just unfathomably ignorant. I mean, the ignorance of what's, you know, their true purpose and being aligned with sort of human, a human sense of reality. They are just profoundly, profoundly, unfathomably ignorant. And yet they have high stakes and there's people watching. And then when they get burned and people accuse them, then they get petty and they react and they double down and they unite with their the forces and the people that are giving them money. And you have these manipulators that are you know, playing them also at the same time, they're trying to play other people and is a total shit show. And when you have people like this with this much power um, acting at scale, you're probably going to get a result that is indistinguishable from our perspective from evil. It is. It looks exactly like what malice would look like what malfeasance would look like these guys being unfathomably ignorant but yet wielding that much power is going to basically result in the same thing as intentional evil it, it, it almost could not be worse it, it may be worse in some ways because intentional evil would maybe reveal itself more clearly for they know not what they do they don't know fucking shit these people are nihilists they're midwits they're utilitarians and they're cowards and they are ignorant and they think in utilitarianism it's just like fantasy baseball right if you have a, a guy listed on your spreadsheet with projections then you know what to do if you don't if you just have a list of guys it's not clear if you don't have the spreadsheet telling you whether to bid or stop bidding these guys have to have utilitarianism they have to have all these advisors giving them the pros and cons they have to have excuses in case it goes wrong I mean, these guys are just profoundly, profoundly ignorant and it's going to look like evil. And, you know, the, the whole Jesus for they know not what they do or the Buddhist concept of everyone's a bodhisattva, you know, can you see it that way? Can one look at it and just say, look, they're doing the best they can under conditions of profound ignorance and they have more power than they ought to. And we need to decentralize power with things like Noster, things like Bitcoin. You know, if Noster... Somebody wants to shut down your speech. There's nobody to shut it down. It's not, it's like email, right? They can't shut down your email. You know, Google, Gmail could stop, could cut you off from your account, but email itself cannot cut you off. There's no one who owns email. There's no one who owns Noster. You know, these things are important because they decentralize power. If speech can no longer be regulated, if speech can no longer be shut down when it's offensive to certain people or harmful to other people, then it won't be shut down. As long as it can be, it will be. As long as there's a Twitter or a Facebook and a person running that, the government will come in and they will bring its power to bear on that person. And so these decentralized protocols like Bitcoin and Noster are, in my opinion, essential because the problem isn't that RFK, who said some good shit, he said something really stupid, but he kind of walked it back. Who knows? But you know, for me, at least he's probably the best choice right now. He may be able to help a little bit. But in the end, there's not going to be someone saving you. He's not going to be the guy that fixes it. Um, he may be able to mitigate some of the damage, decelerate the decay and damage for a bit, though they'll probably just kill him like they killed his uncle and father, uh, to be honest. I mean, I don't think they want uh, his message about the uh, mRNA shot and some of the other shots getting out. But, but if he were to make it, and hopefully he does, he's not going to save you. You know, he can maybe slow down the decay and mitigate it, but it's going to be having people who are just like us, probably worse because they actually crave power, who are totally profoundly ignorant, not having so much power, not having the power to fuck everything up. And even with the white pill, though, and everyone's a bodhisattva, you know, the bodhisattva's lesson isn't like, oh, they're nice. No, that's not the lesson. It's that his not niceness is exactly what you needed to see 
in order to become more enlightened, in order to put selective pressure on you to awaken. So that would be viewing the person as a bodhisattva. He's been sent to awaken you even through his harsh behavior. And so if I take the white pill, which again, I think this is the white pill. I, I meet something else, but that's my understanding of it. I can be in sort of like, okay, this is not personal. You know, these people are just profoundly ignorant. And instead of taking vengeance on all of these people, um, the main thing is to remove them from power. And the best way to remove them from power, you know, the extent you can in the ballot box and all that, but, you know, the, the system that has the ballot boxes are controlled, is controlled by the people that are doing those things. So it's very, it's a conundrum to really, you know, how do you, how do you infiltrate the system when it's the system itself that's the problem that, that is conducting the elections itself? So the, the way is to create technology and participate in technology. I mean, I'm not a tech guy. I'm not going to, not a coder. I'm not going to build something new, but I can go to Noster and I can bring people to Noster and I can get them off of Twitter little by little. I can talk about Bitcoin and what it represents and the, the hope that it represents and, and you know, maybe get people to go down the rabbit hole for themselves. And you can do that also. And we can start moving to more decentralized structures where it doesn't matter how fucking craven and profoundly ignorant these people are. They know not what they do and they can do a lot less harm because they don't control the money. They don't control the communications. Um, they control a smaller and smaller bureaucratic function and they end up just uh, working in some municipality in Portugal and fuck people like me out of our plans. That would be the benign uh, result where that's the level of pettiness and power that they actually have. Anyway, it's uh, just one way to look at it. It maybe makes you less angry. Not really ne less negative. I mean, it's less negative in a sense because when you lose the, the personal nature of it, you know, and you think of it more like a, a hurricane destroyed your house or something like that, you know, you're like, ah, it's just the nature of the world. Anyway, uh, that's probably about it. Till next time.